We're continuing in our study in the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation 12, and our current study is in 12, 7 through 12. And let's just recap real quickly. So we've talked about the book of Revelation having two acts. If you remember, we called it Act 1 and Act 2, you know, because that, that's how creative I am. And so we are beginning Act 2 in chapter 12. Let's go ahead and just rehearse this in, in just for about 30 seconds recap. Act 1 is the story. Really, we could end the book of Revelation in Revelation 11, and it would make sense. It's the story of Christ being born and redeeming the nations, stealing the nations, and having the nations under his dominion from Satan. That's the story from Revelation 1 through 11. In Revelation 12 through 22, in Act 2, we're going into the second act, which is the same thing. Christ is redeeming mankind by redeeming the nations and stealing them back from Christ or from Satan. But it's with an emphasis of what does that mean to the church? What does it mean for the ecclesia? What does it mean for his followers? And so we have an emphasis on that. So if you notice in chapter 12, we start with a couple of great signs. We have in verse 1, the great sign that appeared in heaven was this woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. We're talking about this woman being historically the Kahal Ecclesia of the Old Covenant, faithfully bringing about the Messiah. And they are now pictured in heaven. We are now, remember, we are risen with Christ. We are now risen with Christ positionally. We're in him. And so as he ascended in Acts chapter 1, now we see this struggle to bring about the Messiah is now settled in heaven. We see that she's with child and she gives birth to the Messiah. We see another uh, a sign in verse number three. It's a, it's a fiery dragon. We see these multiple heads, multiple horns, multiple diadems. We talked about in the Greek that that diadem is, some, is, a, is a kind of a, a crown that you don't earn. There's a couple of different Greek words for crown. This is one that's stolen. Verse number four, we see his, his political power of trying to destroy the, the child before he's born from the woman. And all of a sudden we see in verse number five, uh, one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible in verse number five, we see the birth of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, all encompassing his entire ministry in one verse. If you see that, look, the, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. We talked about a couple weeks ago that the rod of iron is not a sword. Remember, he told Peter, put your sword away. So what is this rod of iron? This rod of iron is literally the gospel that comes out of his mouth. He rules the nations with the gospel. He does not rule the nations with Scud missiles or M1 Abram tanks. I think I just dated myself. That's all from deserts, the Gulf War. But anyway, uh, whatever the current <laughs> military weapons are of the day, he doesn't rule us with military technology. Jesus rules the nation. It's very important you know this because as we were just talking about a moment ago, you're going to be faced with people who think the world is getting worse. Oh, I thought you said Jesus was ruling and reigning. I had this conversation yesterday. I said, Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. And they said to me, he's not doing a very good job and his rod of iron must not be very good. If G if you, Ken, if you think Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron, he's not doing a very good job. And it's important for us to use Bible language, to use the Bible as our glossary. In the Bible, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the rod of iron theme is that it comes out of his mouth and it's the gospel, it's the word of God that he rules and reigns with. And as the gospel grows, he conquers the hearts of men. We see the ascension in verse number six that he's caught up to God and to his throne. 
the throne of this God-man, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, that God emptied Himself and became a man and was caught up to heaven. Verse 6, we see the instruction that we saw in the Olivet Discourse. Remember what he said? When you see the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem and the abomination of desolation, we get those details in Luke 21. He said, hightail it to the hills. Remember, it's, it's kind of reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his family. Don't look back. Don't go back for your clothes. Don't long for the old days. It's, it's going to be destroyed. Run to the hills. We see that in verse number 6. The woman fled to the wilderness. She has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And then we get to the beginning of our study here. That's why I'm going a little faster there. Verse number 7, immediately there's a war that broke out in heaven. And notice that Michael and his angels are the one that initiated the war. We, I think, ended on verse 9, so this is all recap. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels are the one that initiated this war. And he fought with the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought. Thank goodness Satan did not prevail, nor was found for them any uh, found for them in heaven any longer, a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now here's what we talked about last week, and here's where we left off. It's so very, 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 very important you get this concept. This concept I'm about to tell you will unlock so much of the Old Testament for you. So please get this. And if you don't get this, Raise your hand. we got to get this as a group. In the Old Covenant, Satan had access to heaven. And he had a judicial standing. You say, what are you talking about? He had a foothold. Satan had a loophole in your guiltiness in the Old Covenant. So he stood before the Lord and he accused the brethren night and day. What was his foothold? His foothold was... That the redemption of mankind hinged on the, the blood of animal sacrifices. And it all hinged on a man who was the faulty person to go and do per, uh, perform correct ceremonies in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And if they messed up on one thing, if they didn't do one thing properly, Satan had every judicial standing to go to heaven and to start saying, look, they didn't do it right. Look, you you said no blemish. That one had a mosquito bite. What do you think about that? And so the great accuser of the brethren would take an imperfect system of the old covenant and he had a judicial foothold. Could you imagine if Satan had a judicial foothold on your life this morning? And so he had actually a good point. And when Satan came before the Lord, remember, we see this specifically in one case laid out for you in the book of Job. Job was a good, good case study for what we're talking about. If we want to study case law, Satan had a good point. Look, you're blessing him. Oh, that's a big deal. Oh, so he loves you? He loves you based on your blessings. Take those away. He'll curse you to your face. And that's what the book of Job is about, is this case law study of the judicial foothold Satan had in the Old Covenant. Now, that was actually before Abraham, but the, the, the story still stands. So Job is a contemporary in the book of Genesis, if you didn't know that. And so what's a big deal in verse number 7? Look at it again. In verse 8, I'm sorry. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven. Look, notice these two words any longer. That's a big deal. After Jesus died and rose again, what he did was he became the priest. He became the perfect sacrifice. What he did effectively was he put the accuser of the brethren, that great attorney, Satan himself, he put him out of business. He took away any foothold 
that Satan had in the process of redemption, he shut his mouth up. There was no more loophole. Jesus was the one that closed the loophole judicially. Satan has zero standings before God to accuse you of anything because your defense is Christ. It's ironclad. There are no faults in Christ. And so thankfully, verse number 8 says there, there, was, there, was a, a play, there was not a place found for them in heaven, and this is so important, any longer. If you get the concept of what we just said, it will help you so much, not just in your Bible knowledge, but in your life to have peace. We have peace through Christ because of Him completely filling in all of the areas of the Old Covenant and bringing in a new covenant. That's why He simply said in the upper room, take, eat. Take, drink, this is my blood which is broken for you. This is my body which is, my blood which is spilled for you. My body which is broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. That's the offering. A brand new covenant and it's all found in Him. You, you understand the word covenant means a cutting. A cutting. Remember this very odd story when Jesus is making covenant with Abraham? He tears apart animals and he walks through it. This is, a, this is a prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus looks at Abraham and he says, Look, I can't find any greater name than to make a covenant with than myself. So I swear by my own name. And that was a foreshadowing of Jesus saying, I will tear myself apart. I will be cut for you. A new cutting I bring you. You said, man, I, circumcision is terrible in the Old Testament. Man, it's minor compared to what Jesus went through. But that cutting, that, to cut a new covenant. When you hear the word covenant, just think of cutting. And Jesus was cut open for you. And there's no reversing that, just like circumcision. So let's look at verse 8. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And we have, of course, already gone over a few things. Let's look at your handout. Imagine the surprise that Satan had when Christ won on the cross. Let me give you a, a quick thought. We'll, we'll take a break in a moment. Let me give you a quick interesting thought that Sarah and I had this week. We were kind of talking through this. <laughs> didn't Satan know? I mean, did, didn't Satan know this is the Messiah? Well, guess what? He wasn't sure. Satan's not omniscient. There were a lot of people that claimed to be the Messiah. If you read the uh, apocryphal readings between the intertestamental readings, mal intertestamental meaning in between the testaments, old and new, Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years there, intertestamental period. In that time period, there were dozens and dozens of people that said, I'm him, I'm here. And they were claiming to be the Messiah. Guess what? They all required Satan's full attention. Is it him? He doesn't know. I mean, he thought Moses was him. Remember, we talked about that last week. He wasn't sure. All of a sudden, Pharaoh killing all the kids, two and under, kill them all. Herod, kill them all. I don't know. Which one's him? I don't know. I think he's here. So he's looking at Jesus, and he's like, this could be him, but man, he's not, he's not really beautiful. He's not very tall and strong. Jesus was very unassuming, it says in Isaiah 53. Is this him? Finally, he gets him on the cross. Oh, see, it wasn't him. I can only imagine as Jesus is about to die. I told you this is just matey theology. This is not in the Bible, but it makes sense to me according to what we're studying. I can almost imagine Jesus just winking at Christ on the cross. Got ya? The, the way that he got him was by dying. He was the sacrifice. He ended the fat sacrificial system. 
But think about this. As Sarah and I were talking about this this week, you know, I have people ask me all the time, especially with us being post-millennialists. They say, Ken, let me ask you, if I have the Bible in my hand, and you have the Bible in your hand, and I have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit, why do we disagree so much on this? That's a fair question. Why do we disagree so much? If you have the Bible, I have the Bible, and uh, you can read and I can read, and we both have access to the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever disagree? I, I don't know the total answer to that, but I will tell you one thing I've noticed. People make tremendous strides in their Bible study when they're humble, when they're okay with being wrong. If you're okay with being wrong, I've just noticed people grow really fast and it seems to tend t- towards this style of teaching. And I will tell you, the book of James says that God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. That word resist in the Greek means a military wall. You cannot get to him if you have pride. He will keep you out. You know why Satan wasn't sure about all the prophecies in Daniel? He was re- Satan was reading words trying to get prepared for the Messiah, but he, he wasn't humble. Remember, they asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? He goes, because they have ears, yet they cannot hear. You ever think about that? Satan's not omniscient. Satan had no idea if, if Christ was really him or not. And by the time he found out, he lost. And a war broke out in heaven and he got kicked out. And so here in verse number eight, they did not prevail. We have written in your handout here about Job. We already went over him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, I believe we may have touched on this. We'll do this and then we'll take a quick break and, and finish up this, this, uh, this portion of our study. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is saying here that the rulers of this age did not know that was the Lord of glory. If they did, who would crucify the Lord of glory if they knew? Who would be dumb enough to try and kill deity? Uh, no one would want to be in that much trouble. He said, if they had known, they wouldn't have crucified. They did not know until it was too late. Here in verse number eight, I have in your handout, the prosecutor, Satan, shows us his judicial foot, uh, I'm sorry, shows us his judicial foothold in Job 1.6. How can God justify the ungodly and remain just himself? And that's really the question we're going through in this chapter. How can God, who is just, justify the ungodly and still remain just. How can he do that? Well, Christ took away this leverage at the cross. And to that I say amen and amen and amen. We'll go for about three more minutes. We'll take our break. Verse number nine. Let's look at that. So the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, And his angels were cast out with him. So in verse number nine in your handout, I wrote, The power that Satan had in the old covenant was now gone due to the atonement provided by Christ on the cross. Notice what John also does here through the Holy Spirit. John references a garden of Eden. So we have this serpent motif or this serpent theme One of the things I'm really getting big on the more that I learn and the more that the Lord shows me I enjoy word studies. The 
The theological phrase for that is semantic word studies. It means a range of words. And then you, when you study those range of words in their context, it's called a semantic field study. I'm very big on that. It's what I've dedicated my life to. Well, obviously, I'm big on that. But you know what's more important than a word study? Backing up and reading the whole biblical narrative, the overarching ideas are so much more important than a little word study. If you just say, you know what, I don't know what all these little words mean, do this. Think to yourself, what is generally the book of Genesis about? What do you generally see? And these overarching thematic studies is biblical theology. It's letting the Bible interpret itself based on themes. Covenant theology is a theming theology. And here, in the book of Revelation, we see it connected to that old serpent. It's a reference to the Garden of Eden. And now we're connecting the fact that there was a serpent, Genesis 3.15, this prophecy of, of, of a seed of the woman coming. And that's why we see the woman here in Genesis 12. It's the woman that did this, that gave the faithful line of women that brought about the Messiah. It's all of this woman talk in Genesis or Revelation 12 is a fulfillment of, of Genesis 3. So it's the woman, it's that old serpent, it's the same old thematic story. And John is just simply saying, it's happened. He crushed him. And so we have to be able to recognize these overarching themes. He deceives the whole world. Well, guess what? He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Why were they cast to the earth? Well, because there was no place found for them any longer in heaven. They no longer had a judicial foothold in heaven. Now you see that faithful woman that's brought about the Messiah. Her position is now in heaven. Why is her position in heaven when we haven't been resurrected yet? Simple, because our position is in Christ and Christ ascended. And we see that at the end of verse number five. Verse number 10 says, Then I heard a, a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. I don't know if you're like me, but you've heard Revelation taught your whole life. And I have never understood these verses until now. What a blessing to read this in context and fully understand verse 10. One of the key traits that I adore about our theological position, commonly referred to as postmillennialism, is that Christ is sufficient in our view. Christ has done everything necessary in our view. There's nothing we're wait, waiting for him to get mad enough at to come back and really fix it. He doesn't have to come and, and really show who he is through anger. That's how I was raised to believe that. How do you make sense of Revelation 12.10 if you believe that the cross was not enough and that Jesus must come again to make everything right? But with the way that we're looking at this, obviously, when Jesus ascends into heaven and those that are positionally in him are safe in heaven and Satan has been crushed by him and Satan is kicked out because there's no longer any place found for him, verse 10 naturally flows out of the celebration from the ascension of Christ, the coronation of the kingship of Christ. And in verse number 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, 
Now, how simple is this? Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. What happens after Christ ascends in Acts chapter 1? The accuser of our brethren, think about it, that great attorney who had a foothold in the old covenant, the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night. He's been defeated. He's been cast down. How simple is that? We're going to look at a couple verses that may help this make even more sense. Speaking of the very heart of the gospel, Paul, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, the very heart of the gospel in this. We're going to look at what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3 uh, in verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul getting to the real point of the gospel here says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Does that make more sense after we've studied so much in this book of Revelation? Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because His forbearance, God had passed over the saints that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is both, and this is a great thing to take away today, Jesus is both just and the justifier. That's the loophole that Satan had in the Old Covenant. How could you be just and justify sin when we both know there's no way a sinner could properly perform the functions in the temple? So he would come before the Lord in the Old Covenant and say, Your Honor, if I may approach the bench, is this individual a sinner, yes or no? And the Father would say, yes, that individual is a sinner. Your Honor, if I may have a follow-up, is this also the same individual that you're allowing to perform a ritual to atone for their own sin, yes or no? Yes, that's true. Your Honor, if I may have a follow-up, is it true that creation is under a curse? Yes or no? Yes, creation's under a curse. If I may, Your Honor, I have a question. How could a cursed animal, you require a blemish-free animal, how could a cursed animal from a sinful person be offered upon an altar that was made by sinful people and be made a perfect atonement before a just God? How can you call yourself just? and justify a sinner who by his own workings are really doing things to justify himself. And you think that's perfection? Are you not perfect? Because the argument has to be, you're no longer perfect if you're just letting some things slide. You see that? So Paul in Romans 3 brings all these things together in this one beautiful sentence in verse 26. What did Jesus do? He did this to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. 
that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The fight is over once the new covenant begins in his blood. God is both just and the justifier of the ones who have their faith in Jesus Christ. It is a big, big deal. I want you to understand this. I have this in your outline. Mercy is voluntary. If you are in a courtroom and you are an attorney and you go to the judge, you say, Your Honor, I understand what the law says. I'm asking for your help. My client needs mercy from the court today. This is the situation. We believe it would be in the best interest of our society if you would exercise mercy. You have to understand, when you hear the word mercy, connected in your mind with voluntary. Mercy is not demanded by the law. Mercy, if God has shown you mercy in your life, has he shown mercy in your life? All of us, right? Just know that's voluntary. But, but, God must always be just. He must always be just. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Just to your right there, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, if you would, and I meant chapter 10. I apologize. Verse 1. Hebrews, I knew that didn't look right. Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 1, verses 1 through 4. Please get this. This is going to be a great thing for you to get today also. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, neither can neither with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The author is saying here, we get it. These same sacrifices are imperfect, done by imperfect people. But it's a shadow of good things to come, it says in verse number one. These are such very, very, very important passages to have in your back pocket. Then, verse two, then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. In other words, if, it was, if the old covenant was so great, as soon as they were made perfect by the perfect sacrifices, there would be no need for more. But that wasn't the case. There was annual sacrifices. There was frequent offerings. Verse number four. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. Every, it comes up every year. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's Leviticus chapter 16. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So it's not a possibility for this old system, this old covenant, to ever justify anybody long term. It was always meant to be a shadow of good things to come. I talked to somebody just yesterday on social media and I try to limit myself because it's just there's, it's kind of like how many people can you spend time on? But there's a guy yesterday I was talking to, and I, I always know where the argument's going, but it just depends how much time I have to spend on it. And yesterday, somebody had said to me, um, uh, I think there's a third temple coming because of whatever. And we've all heard the arguments, hey, guys, there's a new uprising in the Middle East. And when this happens, then... And I, and I just simply just said, because I'm trying to go overarching themes. And I just said, I believe that the third temple talked about in the Bible is Jesus. I believe he's the fulfillment of the things talked about in the Old, Old Covenant. He said, oh, I believe that too. He said, but the thing you need to understand, Ken, is that Israel didn't believe he was the Messiah. And so 
they are going to reinstitute an old temple. And when they build the old temple, that will be their way of coming to the Messiah. I said, well, let me ask you a question. If your neighbor is not saved and does, don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, would they then need to offer an animal sacrifice to get saved? Or, I mean, could you lead them to the Lord? Right? If your neighbor doesn't believe, because that's the argument. Well, they, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so they have to build a temple. That makes such little sense. If your neighbor is, sa- is not saved, for them to get saved, I asked this person, do they need to sacrifice an animal? He said, well, no, of course not. I said, how would your neighbor get saved? They said, well, they just call on the name of Jesus. And I said, exactly. That's how the Jews are going to get saved too. Just because somebody doesn't recognize Jesus as Messiah and they happen to have a descendancy of Abraham doesn't mean they're going to build a temple and start doing animal sacrifices for the remission of sin. It makes no sense. So I said to him, I said, I said, but that's under the old covenant. He said, exactly. And I said, oh, and I knew we were going there from the beginning. I said, oh, you think the old covenant is still in effect today? And they said, yes. And I said, oh, well, that's where we disagree. I think the New Testament has taken the place of the old, or the new covenant has taken the place of the old covenant. And they said, oh, I disagree. I said, oh, I'm glad we, I'm glad we saw this. I'm glad we understood. You are making a theological argument from the old covenant I think Jesus fulfilled that, and we're now in the new covenant, but I'm glad we at least understand each other. He said, absolutely. He said, God bless you. I want everybody to understand that argument comes from an old covenant thinking that the Jews didn't believe, so they have to reinstitute the temple, build everything, offer animal sacrifices, and God will go, oh, you guys are still back there? Okay, I'll forgive your sins, and now Jesus is the Messiah. You can enter in like you should have in the first century. Jesus is the only way to the Father today. That's it. And so, in in Hebrews chapter 10, we are understanding that the old covenant had limitations and Jesus himself, I have in your handout, Christ at the cross became both just and justifier at that point. The prosecutor had, had no case and lost his job before the judge. Here's a quote from David Chilton. The outcome of the holy war is this, the kingdom has arrived. The power of God and the authority of Christ have come, have been made manifest in history because the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And now, are you beginning to see the overarching theme of why it's important we understand that Satan is bound? What is Satan bound from? Well, he's bound from access to heaven. He's bound from having any headquarters in deceiving the nations. He's not allowed to have, he doesn't have free reign everywhere. So when we say Satan is bound, a lot of people take it to the extreme and say, oh, he's in chains somewhere. Why why do bad things happen still? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Satan being bound means. It means he does no longer has a foothold in the old covenant access to heaven. He no longer has accusations in any form in a judicial sense against you. And he's bound that he does not have access to deceive the nations any longer because Jesus is in charge of the nations. That's, we're using biblical language to define it. doesn't mean we turn on MSNBC and say, things aren't going well in, in Ukraine. How could Satan be bound? That's not the definition we're dealing with in the Bible. So when Jesus was at the cross, it was enough. It was sufficient. Big deal there. Verse number, uh, Revelation 12 and verse number 11. Revelation 12, verse two more verses here. Verse number 11. This is so important. And they overcame him. Now, who's the they here? Let's go a little slower. He accused them. 
So he is, we're talking about the ones who were accused by Satan, the, 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 the ecclesia, the, the righteous, the ones in covenant that were, that were really relying on the old covenant sacrificial system. Those people who were trusting in God in the old covenant, they, in verse 11, they overcame him. How did they overcome him? How did they do it? By the blood of the lamb and, notice the and, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. How do we overcome Satan? By the blood of the lamb, which is first, and then us talking about it. When we talk about what Jesus has done as we are this morning, and we're talking about the, the power of the blood of Christ, and that is what has bound Satan. Every time you talk about Jesus, Satan loses a foothold in this conversation. And you defeat him by first, Jesus shedding his blood, and secondly, by you talking about it. Hey, you want to change your workplace? Talk about Jesus. You say, Ken, they may kick me out. God, You don't think God will bless that? Here's what I've learned in my life. If you stick your neck out for Jesus, he will supernaturally take care of your family. You say, I don't know, that makes me nervous. You're missing out on amazing things then. You say, I just want to change this relationship. Talk about Jesus way more. Let his blood have give no foothold to Satan. You say, well, that person may not receive it well. Then you'll be free from somebody who's ungodly. And that oppression in your life will just go away. We overcome Satan in every area of our life, not just in theology. We're not just studying a, you know, this isn't just, you know, Ken likes to read this all week and we hear it because we feel, listen, this is your life. This is every relationship we have. This is society. This is our city. This is our, our, our workplace, our, 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 our relatives. You want Jesus to have a victory in that? Man, he shed his blood, he did his part. Now we just have to have that on our mouths. It's the word of our testimony. And it defeats Satan. The rod of iron is out of the mouth of Christ and we are the body of Christ. I have to read this for you in your handout here. Verse 11, David Chilton says, what Revelation 12 portray, portrays is just that. Not only the subjection of the demons to, to the saints, but the recording of the saints' names in heaven, their sentence is justification of right standing in heaven's hall of justice. For the accuser has been thrown out of court, his false testimony invalidated. The word for conquer in this verse carries the connotation not only of a military victory, but of a legal victory as well, the winning of a favorable verdict. The definitive accomplishment of this, of course, was Christ's atonement for the sins of his people. Thus, just before he offered up himself as the sacrifice, our Lord said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be thrown out. John 12, 31. In Christ's victory, salvation and the kingdom came to earth. Satan was defeated. Amen and amen, amen. Verse number 12. Therefore, remember whenever we read a therefore, what do we do? We find out what it's there for. Therefore, why is it therefore? What we want to do is we want to always look at a word therefore and know that the writer is summarizing and building. It's kind of like we have some logical conclusions and now because of that, this. 
So because of there was a war in heaven, because Michael connected to the book of Daniel we talked about last week, specifically Daniel, who's the prince over Israel, specifically he's the one that kicked out Satan, and now there's no more foothold judicially, and now those that are seated in heaven positionally have the testimony on their lips that Jesus has redeemed them by his blood, and now we rejoice and we overcame him by the word of our testimony. Based on all of that, verse 12 says, Therefore, because of that, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. You say, well, who dwells in them? You do. You do. How do you dwell in them? Because you're, you're with Christ. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. If you're seated at the right hand of the Father, rejoice this morning. Satan's been totally defeated. You're free from him. So, therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. That is to say, the Jews and Gentiles. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. If you're not in Christ, woe to you. If Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, that's what on the earth or in the sea. Woe to you. It means trouble is heading your way. Because Satan is bound from heaven. He's not given the keys of the kingdom. And he can't deceive the nations, but he'll come down and mess you up as much as he can. Woe to you if you're not positionally in heaven. The earth here in your handout is the land and the sea. This means both Jews and Gentiles. You who dwell in them. Remember, let me just point something out real quickly as we bring together this study. Go to John chapter 1 if you would. We'll head back to Revelation 12 in just a moment. We'll wrap it up. John chapter 1 in just a moment. He will um, connect some dots here. Remember in John chapter 1, we learn about this idea of Jesus becoming, or the, the Word becoming a man. We talk about this idea, this concept. You say, has Jesus always existed or was he created? No, Jesus has always existed, but it, it wasn't in his current form. Was Jesus always on the throne? No. No, he wasn't. Because he was referred to as the Word of God. Verse number 1 in John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it's not until verse number 14 we learn this. The Word of God, by the way, capital W, it took me years to figure this out. Years. And by the way, in all my doctoral classes right now, I see people get this mixed up all the time. And now it's becoming, uh, I don't correct anybody on it because I did it all the time myself. This right here is a lowercase w word. When you say the Word of God, I love the Word of God, you're talking about your Bible, this is a lowercase w. Ink and pages from Cambridge or whoever you're printing, coming, you know, Baker Academics, whoever printed this. This is a lowercase w, the Word of God. In fact, that's how it is in the Bible, if you look at it. There's only one capital W. Don't call this capital W Word of God. This is lowercase Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in verse, word in verse 14, the Word, capital W, that's Jesus. He existed in the mouth of God. That is why the gospel, when he rules with a rod of iron, it's in his mouth. It's the powers in the words of Christ. The powers in sharing the gospel, that's how he rules with a rod of iron. Verse 14, and the capital W, the word, that's Jesus, the word, Jesus, became flesh. And here's the word, tabernacled. You say, I see the word dwelt. It's the same word. All the Old Testament tabernacles, those were all a picture of Jesus. 
That was all, think of that as the Christmas story. When you see the old tabernacles with the animal skins and the smoke coming up, think of that as Bethlehem before Jesus. That was a picture of Jesus being born into the world. You have all the dead animals going over all the curtains. It was like a a way of, of purifying and paying for the sins of the atmosphere of this wilderness. And in here, it's been cleansed. In here, you have to be special to come in. You have to wash to come in, and we're going to sacrifice in here. It's a picture of Jesus. It was a shadow of things to come in the tabernacle. And now the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. It's the same word. Jesus dwelt among us. And it says, and finally, if you can imagine how beautiful this is in verse 14, and we beheld His glory. Because remember, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, we wanted the glory of God to come. And when the smoke would come up and the presence of God was there, everybody would start cheering and worshiping God. Why? Because, man, that, that animal you just slit his throat, it's not your throat that's going to get slit. They weren't so much worshiping God because he's so great. They were. But another reason they were worshiping God is because, man, it's not their neck this time. Yes, the smoke is there. You know what that means? It's not my neck that's going to get slit. You want to have a real worship service? Now you bring a knife up here and say, we really hope we see some smoke soon. Because if not, your throat's getting slit. You might have some real worship going on when you see the smoke. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, it's not your neck getting slit. Thank you for accepting that animal. That's, it's weird, but man, thank you for taking that and not me. That's what the, and all of a sudden, the word, capital W, becomes flesh, tabernacles with us, and look what else. And all of a sudden, we behold his glory. The Old Testament. It's like Jesus is like constant smoke coming up. He's with us. The sacrifice is here. It's all working. We're looking at his glory. That's what they wanted in the Old Testament to know the sacrifice was accepted. And all of a sudden, we see his glory. Verse 14. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's move to our right to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I always remember God eats pie crust. I don't know whether he does or not, but that might help you. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. God eats pie crust. All right. Some of you got that. Ephesians 2, verse 6. This is a really key part of this study. Ephesians 2, 6. Let's look at verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and this is key in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The moment you were saved, you took part of the ascension of Christ in Acts 1. Does it make more sense now how John the Revelator in Revelation 12 says, O you heavens and you that dwell in them, rejoice for the accuser of the brethren is cast down. Again to the right, chapter 3, Ephesians 3 verse 10 says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We are seated with Christ in heaven, according to the Bible. Again, to your right, God eats pie crust. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 20. 
Paul goes on to say, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again to your right, Hebrews chapter 12, making our way back over to Revelation. Hebrews chapter 12, and in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's pretty good, isn't it, right there? You can probably stay there for a little bit. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. I have in your handout, for the devil has come down to you. He's come down to you in, verse, in, in Revelation 12 to try and stop the spread of the gospel. But here's the deal. Once a nation removes God and the gospel, Satan will cause much more destruction. Our job as Americans is to share the gospel. That's it, to share the gospel. You want to heal our nation? Share the gospel everywhere you go. And by the way, one last thought. We don't need to turn there because you're all aware of it. But it is the sword out of the mouth of the Lamb. It is our offensive weapon. In the listing in Ephesians 6, if you want to turn there, you can. It's Ephesians 6, 17, but I'll just tell you because you know what it is. In Ephesians chapter 6, there is a listing of weapons for us as believers. It's the helmet of salvation. It's your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. All of these mean things. You can go with the gospel. You move with your feet. Your, your mind is protected by the gospel. This helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. And you go through all these things. All of them are defensive. All of them are defensive. To, to withstand the fiery darts of the wicked, the Bible says in Proverbs, I believe, or Psalms. But there's one offensive weapon. There's one. All the other ones are defensive. It's the word of God. It's the sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus to slay the nations. It's the rod of iron. So the testimony and the bloodshed of God and our testimony of Jesus Christ is how we fight back. So let's go ahead and wrap up in, in Revelation 12. Um, now that we've talked about it a little bit, Revelation 12, in, let's just read verse 12 one more time. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time.